the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Connor. Thank you to our wonderful worship team. And thank you all for being here this morning. Welcome to all of you, to those of you joining us online. It is great to have you with us today. This is the last day in our questions series that we began on the last Sunday of May. Next week, we're moving back into the Gospel of Luke. And I'm so excited about our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke reveals the great compassion of Jesus, his love for people, uh, includes his great parables. And our hope in studying the Gospel of Luke is that the Lord will use it to shape our lives, to shape us individually and as a church to more fully conform us to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And so uh, next Sunday, uh, September 11th, we'll be in uh, Luke chapter 11, and Pastor David Holcomb will be uh, speaking on that passage where Jesus teaches us how to pray. If you've not gotten one of our certainty studies through Luke, they're available today at our resource center. I also want to mention today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if you didn't get one of these little cups on the way in, they'll be available at the tables in the back, <coughs> out the main entrance. Uh, feel free at any point to step up and grab one, but in about 20, 25 minutes, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as always, it's our privilege to pray with you, for you, at these prayer tables at the end of our service, so never leave here feeling like you need someone to pray for you. Well, as our last question today, I'd like to try to address a question I expect we've all had from time to time. Some of us have had this question quite a lot. How can I know God's will? How do I get guidance from God? We're going to look at an Old Testament passage, a psalm, the one that Connor read just a moment ago, Psalm 25. Psalm 25 was written by King David, and it has some interesting features to it. Psalm 25 is one of several psalms, I believe there are nine, that are either in part or whole in the form of an acrostic meaning that each verse in the psalm follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet. For example, if we were reading it in, in English, if it was an acrostic in English, the first verse would begin with A, the second with B, the third with C. We can't tell that because that's the way it was written in Hebrew. We're reading it in English. Why would a psalm be written that way as a Hebrew acrostic? The psalms are a form of Hebrew poetry 
And being in that form would be a tremendous aid to memorizing the psalm. Just imagine how much easier that would make it to memorize if you know each verse started with A, B, C, D. And I want to commend Psalm 25 to you for your own memorization. If not the whole psalm, maybe some of the key verses, because this psalm is a prayer. And Psalm 25 provides some of the greatest verses to pray that I know of for guidance. Guidance is a main theme of Psalm 25. Another feature of the psalm is that King David is writing it out of uh, circumstances of serious adversity. He says in verse 16 of the psalm, Turn to me and be gracious to me. I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Consider my affliction and my trouble. <clears throat> Consider how many are my foes. So that's the setting for the psalm. Yet in the midst of Psalm 25, King David is teaching us, teaching us about getting guidance from God, even in the, the hardest times of life. So how can we know God's will? Number one, by having a relationship of trust in God through Jesus Christ. David trusts God. He's committed himself to God. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I commit myself, my soul, my life to you. In you I trust. To get guidance, you have to know the guide. You have a relationship with the guide. Now, I want to stress something this morning. In talking about guidance, I hope not to, to give you a methodology as much as to point you to a person. Because guidance comes out of relationship. It comes out of relationship with your heavenly Father, and we know him only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. When you've embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have wonderful promises that God will guide you. Jesus said of his followers, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He also said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. God has always been a guide to his people from the earliest days. He led the Israelites by the, the cloud by day and the, the fire by night. He led his people through the teaching and the words of the prophets and the giving of laws. He sent Jesus to reveal himself to us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's always been God's will to reveal his will and his way to his people. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Knowing God's will begins with knowing God. The better you know God, the, the more you grow in your relationship with him, as you grow to know him better and love him more, many of the the questions we have in life about his will, what he wants me to do, where he wants me to go, these kind of fall by the wayside because we walk in closer communion with him. So to start, as David does, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Put your emphasis on your relationship with him rather than some kind of methodology for discerning his will. Secondly, and this should be... Uh, Understood, I guess, but I think it, it, it's worth saying we know his will by being willing to do his will. 
why should God show his will to someone who's not willing to do it? That would be kind of like hiring a, a consultant for your, your, your business or your practice or something like that, and then just ignoring what the consultant says, or going to the doctor for advice about a problem you have and saying, I don't like his advice, I'm just going to disregard what he says. David says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. I want to know your will. David was willing to do the will of God. Let me say this to you. If you're struggling to know God's will in some major decision, just know that your desire to do God's will and your willingness to do his will is very, very pleasing to him. Jesus said in John 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know of the teaching, whether it's from God or whether I'm speaking of myself. In other words, if, if a person's heart's really willing to do the will of God, and he was talking to Jewish religious leaders when he said this, you'll know, you'll know the truth. It will become clear to you. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he'll know. Those who are sincerely seeking will find. So the desire to do God's will is a big step toward knowing God's will. But how many of you in life have had times when you knew you really desired to do God's will, but you were really conflicted over which path to choose? I find that often um, students, young adults, college age, 20-ish age, have a lot of questions like that. In fact, when I reflect on my own decisions in life and struggles to discern God's will, the biggest one I can remember came my final year of college, and um, I was about to graduate, and I had two job offers. One was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and one was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I was just as undecided and conflicted as I could be. I was begging God to show me his will. What is your will? What is your will? What is your will? I prayed with my, the guys in my Bible study. What is God's will? And it was that evening when at a certain time I had to call and make a decision. And the more I worried about it, the more confused I got until I absolutely did not know. And I can remember praying like this, God... Um, just don't let me make a mistake. Just don't let me make a mistake. I trust you, Lord. Ultimately, that's the bottom line. It's trusting him, isn't it? It's just knowing our Heavenly Father who, in, in the words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. He's the guide. Just don't let me make a mistake. I often reflect on that decision and think how different might life have been if I'd Started out in Knoxville, Tennessee, and not moved to Winston, where uh, everything unfolded, it seemed, in my life. We trust him. We trust him. We trust him. And when you're willing to do his will, you can rest assured that that very attitude indicates you're, you're in his will. Thirdly, how can I know God's will? David emphasizes something I think we should grasp in Psalm 25, and that is by relating to God on the basis of his grace rather than our goodness. I love the way David um, prays here. And again, the psalm is a prayer. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. The Hebrew word that is translated into English steadfast love 
is a most important Old Testament word, the word hesed. And this single word is translated in various ways in English. Some Bibles render it as loving kindness, some as mercy, some like the English Standard Version as steadfast love. I had a professor in seminary who said perhaps the best way to, to translate this word is loyal love. He said it refers to God's covenant love for his people, those on whom he has set his love and his affection. David is saying, God, deal with me on that basis, not on the basis of who I am, but who you are, this quality, this has said, this loyal love of yours. Please deal with me that way, Lord. Lord, you are good and I am not. And yet you instruct sinners. He goes on to say, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. David recognizes his sin, but he knows that God instructs sinners because of his great steadfast love. God guides the humble. We relate to God on the basis of his great, steadfast, loyal love and not on the basis of our goodness. Throughout scripture, we see God giving his grace to the humble. One of Jesus' very, very short parables, but it's a very, a very powerful one, is his parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus said two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, religious man, and the other a tax collector, despised in his time and in his culture. And the Pharisee prayed this way, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, unjust, adulterers, extortioners, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I, I get. I thank you that I'm not like them. And Jesus said he prayed thus with himself. But the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, this man went home justified and not the other. God gives his grace to the humble by relating to God on the basis of his grace rather than, his, than our goodness. How can I know the will of God? By honoring his words. David says, all the paths of the Lord. David's not only praying in this psalm, he's teaching us. This is a teaching psalm. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love, his hesed and his faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God's testimonies are his laws, his commands, his words. And when we seek to keep God's testimonies, his paths become clearer. God's word in scripture, rightly understood, rightly interpreted, reveals his will. And the greater our knowledge of his word, the clearer will be our knowledge of his will. But those of us who've read the Bible a few times realize the Bible does not answer every single question for which we need guidance in life, does it? Doesn't tell you which house to buy, which car to buy, which job to take, which person to date, which person to marry. But it does give very broad general guidance. For, for example, while the Bible won't answer every question we have uh, about which company to work for, it'll provide guidance about work that is honest and just and in which we can maintain integrity. 
Bible won't tell us who to marry, but it gives guidance about being like-minded in our faith and devotion to the Lord. The Bible won't tell us which house to buy, but it provides a lot of good guidance about money management and wise stewardship. And I would say this, we shouldn't expect God to give specific guidance unless we're first willing to honor the general guidance that he's given us here in his word. So start there. Start there in his word. Number five, how can I know God's will? By growing in love for God and reverence for God. David says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct. God will guide the person who fears him. Now, the fear of the Lord, as David is using it here, I think is best understood as reverence for God. Not the kind of fear that drives us from God, but the type of fear that leads us to respect, honor, revere God. Some people are just too casual. Some Christians who know and love the Lord seems to me are, are sometimes just too casual in the way they relate to God. He's not our best bud who gives us everything we want in life. He loves us, yes. We can call him our Father who art in heaven. But Jesus went on to say, also, hallowed is his name. That means to be reverenced. In God, we, in the gospel, we combine relationship and reverence, friendship and fear. David says, if you look at that verse again in 12 to 14, <clears throat> the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. He makes known his ways, his will. David's telling us the Lord instructs the one who fears him in the way he should choose. And then finally, how can I know God's will? By being willing to wait on the Lord. David says, my eyes are on him. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He's going to protect me in this adversity. He'll pluck my feet out of the net. For you, he says to the Lord, I wait all the day. The Hebrew word translated wait in verse 5 is an interesting word. It does not refer to passive inactivity. It implies a believing expectation to look eagerly, awaiting, hoping, like a, a, a child who's waiting for her, her dad to come home from a long trip, and she's standing at the window, door, watching, waiting for her dad to return. David says, for you, I wait all the day. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. This is a quality in King David that is highly significant and indicative of his heart for God as we read about the life of David in the Old Testament. One of the most interesting contrasts, I think, in the Old Testament is found in the book of 1 Samuel. It is the contrast between King Saul, the first king of Israel, and King David. King Saul was an outwardly impressive man. His father was wealthy. His family was wealthy. The book of 1 Samuel tells us Saul was the most handsome man in all Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. He was striking in his appearance. He was wealthy. He was chosen as the first king of Israel. 
But Saul soon proved to be impatient and presumptuous. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Philistines were encroaching on the Israelite army. The prophet Samuel had told Saul that he would be there at a certain time and you know, the offering would be offered for their victory in battle. When Samuel wasn't there at the very moment Saul thought he should be, Saul offers the offering himself, something that was unlawful for him to do. Samuel comes and rebukes him for that. The next chapter of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, Saul puts his whole army under a foolish and rash vow, which would have made him take the life of his very own son if his soldiers had not stopped him from doing that. And then as he continues his demise in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul just can't get any guidance from God, and he goes to a medium. David, on the other hand, he had his sins. If you read the Bible, you know that. He had his faults. But David was one who waited on God. And this comes out in many of the Psalms that were written by King David. For example, Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David learned in the midst of his adversities to wait on God's intervention. God, it seems, calls the people that he uses in life at certain times to learn to wait, to wait on him, to wait expectantly on his guidance, on the unfolding of his plan. It can be a hard lesson to learn. But I would say this to you. If you've been praying about something for a long time, you haven't seen it happen yet, if there's a significant decision before you and you're struggling with which direction to take and God's calling you to wait, I would just say this to you. Waiting on God for an answer, for direction, for a solution. Waiting on God is never wasted time. The kind of waiting David describes in the Bible is, a, is an eager, believing expectation. God, my eyes are on you. I'm not moving until you make it clear what it is you want me to do. My eyes are on you. And I would just say to you, be alert to what God is doing in your life during the waiting. God is often working to change us in those times. There are people I've prayed for to see life change in them for, for years, decades even. And you wonder, is this praying doing any good? It is. It is. It is not wasted. God is working, and sometimes he's working in us in those times of waiting. The Bible compares us to sheep and God, the Lord, as the shepherd. When we come to God through faith in Jesus, because that is the only way to receive his salvation. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. We are part of his sheepfold. And again, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He not only saves us, gives us eternal life, adopts us into his family, 
but he becomes the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. The one who is watching us, the one who's guiding us, the one who's actually fashioning our, our souls. We read these beautiful words about Jesus' work in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 22, about Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel right there, Jesus taking our place, becoming our substitute. He himself bearing our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter continues, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Have you ever thought of the Lord as the overseer of your soul? Some versions read, read bishop, and it, 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 it's someone who's got their eye on someone watching over you for your care and your good. So central is this work of Jesus by which he brings us into his fold that he's given us a way to forever reflect upon it, remember it, and celebrate it in what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. You may have grown up in a church tradition where it was called the Eucharist. They're referring to essentially the same thing. And we're going to celebrate that this morning. But first on the screen, we'll see some words written by the Apostle Paul, what Paul writes about the Lord's Supper. And yes, if you don't have one of these cups, feel free to get, if you didn't get one in the, on the way in, feel free to grab one at the back. Our ushers may have a few to distribute as well. The Apostle Paul writes these words about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Bible says when we take the Lord's Supper, we should examine ourselves. And I think that means first and foremost to examine ourselves to be certain that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But furthermore, this is a time to examine ourselves to make sure that there's nothing hindering our fellowship with God. If there's a sin to confess, something we've not repented of, it's a good time to do that. If the person, there's a person we need to forgive. It's a very good time to do that. And so I'd like to take a moment before we celebrate the Lord's Supper and do just what the Apostle Paul said we should do, examine ourselves. So would you join me now as we pray? Father, how we thank you 
that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If there is anyone here or watching us online who has not yet placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, would you bring that one today, Lord, to the knowledge that Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid our debt, that you are calling us to repent and turn from our sins and turn to him, to receive him as Lord and Savior. And Father, for each of us now, as we take a moment of silence, would you speak to us and help us to examine ourselves so that when we take this cup and bread, we would do it rightly in your eyes.